out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of Big Dipper, because I recently spoke to the bassist, Steve Michener, to find out more about life, love and poetry, as always. And um, I do believe he was in other bands before that called Dump Truck. But we are going to get down to that, all that information, in the next hour or so. Anyway, look, after quite a long chat, which all got edited out, we start to talk about, um, I suppose, Steve's early musical moments. And uh, he picks up the story from there. And um, then we just chat about it, really. So look, sit back, relax, enjoy. Steve, tell us more about your musical journey. Over to you. So I joined a band in uh, Boston with some friends. And they broke up, and so I grabbed the drummer, who was the the only real musician in the band, um, and learned the lesson. It's like always, you know, stick with the drummer. He's the guy who, if he can make the band sound great, he can make you sound good. Yes. <laughs> so we st- we played in another band, and then uh, eventually, uh, after kicking around for a couple of years, I met uh, Gary Wallach, who was. Uh, uh, a couple years younger than me, but he was a guitarist and he was trying to get into bands too. Um, he, we were all into the same bands. We liked uh, uh, Gang Four, Mission to Burma, Buzzcocks, you know, all these bands. And we would uh, hang out in his uh, room. He had a little uh, apartment and we'd listen to these great bands like Husker Du and Mekons and Monochrome Set. And, um, Loved all that stuff. So at that stage, Husker Du was still quite a new band, weren't they? I mean, they yeah, was... yeah, they were like a early, that was early on. That was like early '80s, but they were they were out there. They had an EP like uh, Everything Falls Apart, and they had a couple singles. Yes, and they were the the thing that attracted them to us is that they were hard. You know, they were hardcore in a way, but they're also very tuneful. You know, you could hear that the. the the Beatles in their music. They were not, uh, a lot of that hardcore stuff had no melody. It was just all thrash and energy and machismo. But this was like, you know, a band. Well, it's like- interesting because I think the enemy used to also bring out this. I keep on about the enemy, but they used to also have these kind of singles, didn't they? Like four track singles, which played at 33, not 45. And I think there was a cover of um, Husker Du doing Ticket to Ride on one of them. Oh, yeah. yeah and also, that. they do an amazing version of eight miles high which is yes. still one of the greatest cover versions of all time i think i agree, you know, I agree. it's just awesome yes. so all the way from minneapolis dear old huskadoo god they were, <laughs> they were from 87 was kind of the year that i was absolutely obsessed with that band that was when warehouse came out after candy apple gray god I love oh, that. you got into them late dude that's very late i know it's very unhipped we were into them you know I know. I, I used to, I used to have friends who only <laughs> would like the first album, and they and they'd always, you know this one particular guy said yeah but they hadn't really learned to play their instruments but that was the best album and it was like after that, was <laughs> rubbish, you know? and I was like well I know it's great yeah. to be there on the first single flexi disc but sometimes right. you know. no they <laughs> definitely have better. Gary and I kind of messed around for a while playing in various uh, lineups, but then we placed an ad or we placed an ad looking for a drummer and uh, 
Vishnu Burma had recently broken up and Peter Prescott was looking for a new thing. And he actually like called, answered our ad, talked to my roommate at the time. And um, we, uh, but my roommate failed to take down his number. And he's like, oh yeah, someone called looking for the, you know, interested, he's a drummer. And we were like, oh, okay, who, you know, what was his name? It's like, oh, Peter, somebody. We're like, oh, that's brilliant. And then, but uh, never, we didn't connect there, but then he placed an ad like a month later, we answered it. And then um, that ended up becoming the first iteration of many of um, Volcano Suns. Right. So this was and, the mid eighties, wasn't it? Uh, this was 83. Right. Yeah, okay. 1983. Yeah, that was, the, the Suns were around a long time. I think like 83 to, yeah, about like 91 maybe. Right. But before that, I mean, before they started recording, Gary and I were in the band with, with Peter and we uh, were writing songs and doing demos and playing some shows. But um, it was a very uh, fraught relationship um, at the time. Peter still had a lot of uh, issues. You know, Mission and Burma had broken up kind of right on the cusp of them getting bigger. Yes. Uh, the guitarist had had issues with his hearing and pulled out of the band and kind of left the other two um, you know, without a band. And uh, so there were some, there's definitely some, some issues going on there. Yeah. But, um, but uh, it was fun to play for a while, but then eventually it got to be too intense. There's a lot of, there's a lot of anger in the music and, um, and it didn't feel like like I at that time I was discovering REM, right? And I was like, ah, oh, you know, I kind of you know I, I like Volcano Suns and there's a lot of screaming and you know a lot of uh, catharsis. But um, I was actually starting to get more into like bands like REM, starting to get into the American sound and moving away from the the English sound because we discovered uh, great bands on the radio like X and. Uh, the embarrassment and I think this was the time of violence bams too like early right. 80s. and uh, so I started to get more drawn drawn towards that because I suppose you know I'm not quite sure how it goes with the American lot but <laughs> the American lot that's so bad <laughs> to say that um but you know in the UK you know we'd had that punk then post-punk you know with those bands you mentioned as well as you know Gang of Four and Magazine and and the right. Nightingales and Marky Smith and then that kind of early 80s you know there was people like Julian Cope and U2 and Simple Minds were kind of coming out and doing their stuff and then obviously REM but it was kind of 83 I put 83 as a major moment because the Smiths appear and it, and it's almost oh, yeah. like wow <laughs> they, the too, they yeah. have arrived I know and um and it was something kind of really exciting for that period of the Smiths lifestyle you know fight lifestyle not a good lifestyle but a lifespan of five years and they really did sort of capture something there was like bands like the June Brides there'd been orange juice as well, but you had all that, you know, stuff from like the Triffids and the go-betweens and the chills. So there was a real sense of sort of writing these beautiful three and a half minute kind of songs, yeah. which you could tell that with the, like the birds or the Beatles influences and great lyrics and everyone mm. was, you know, it was great poetry. Poetry to I me. agree. I still have arguments with people that, uh, um, you know, there's a lot of Smith's naysayers and uh, people who just can't stand Morrissey's voice or um, 
attitude and I still defend him. I, I still think he was one of the more brilliant uh, lyricists of his time. Uh, and Johnny Marr, of course. I mean, the songs they wrote together are incredible. I mean, he yeah. has a huge fan. And um, I must admit, being a Smiths fan is a bit tricky because of, you know, what yes, they... things, things have evolved. <laughs> and the solo work isn't great. And to be honest, John, Johnny, a great guitarist, but he shouldn't sing really. Right. Yeah. He he actually lived here in Portland for a while. Like there was a lot of uh, sightings, and he would play with, sit in with various bands, and he was. Uh, I don't think he lives here anymore, but he, he did live in Portland, Oregon for a while. Right. Good girl. There you go. Stayed with the same girlfriend since the age of 16, I think. Well, good for That's him. just showbiz gossip for you. Anyway. So, <laughs> so yes. So you were so you were in the um the Suns for, for right. um so and the then... songs that the songs that we wrote ended up on the first album, but Gary and I left kind of on the verge of the of the first album. Um we were just getting ready to record that. And then he got two new guys. It was kind of like Menudo, you know, we'd just plug in two uh, new people. Blind. And, uh, and uh, but you know, it was Peter's band. He, he definitely was the, the main songwriter, but we had written some songs together and a few of them had ended up on that first album, uh, first Volcano Suns album. Uh, but Gary was tired of being in a band, I think. He wanted to focus on school. He was getting his uh, communications degree at the time and didn't really wanna, because the band was starting to get more serious and play more out of town shows. Uh, so he left and then I figured, well, it would probably be not too much fun without Gary. So, um, so I left and um, after a couple of months of not doing anything, I got a call from the guys in Dump Truck and they were putting together a permanent band and asked me to come down and, um, and um, and audition for them. And they had just put out their first album, which they recorded by themselves and released by themselves, uh, D is for Dump Truck. Um, and they were, they had gotten some good reviews and they were encouraged. And so they were gonna go on tour. And so when they called me and said, well, we're, you know, we're putting together a rhythm section uh, cause they had done the album with friends and more or less themselves. And, uh, and then they said, well, we're looking for a band to go on tour. And I was like, oh, then I'm definitely, I definitely want to join. Because um, the idea of going on tour at that point, I was like 23, 24, um, just sounded very romantic. Yes, well, absolutely. My God, you get a chance to sort of do the, the rock and roll thing. And, and, and also, <laughs> I, I, you know, and I don't know if you can remember this, but in the 70s, I'm, I'm not sure the 80s, but I remember people being interviewed, you know, musicians and, you know, often they would just be asked, you know, about being in the band. They and they would say, yeah, well, it's just the sex, drugs, and rock and roll. You know, it was it was quite a quite different scene. Someone must have said, stop saying those words, by the way, especially the sex. <laughs> <Thank bit. God>. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it was kind of you know being on the road, being that musician. I do, you know, it was the old grey whistle, whistle test. You know, people would be talking about you know that lifestyle and it was it was pretty you know I don't know I'm yeah. not saying every band was like that but everyone you know that was kind of the dream when you were 16 wasn't it to be on the road yeah. being a musician and a great yeah Bob Seger you know um but it was uh of course you know I mean I don't want to spoil the plot but you know it wasn't everything that it turned out you know didn't turn out to be everything you thought it would be <laughs> no absolutely so were you on the first album these for dump truck or positive so no so they recorded that um 
and then they hired me to play bass uh, as part of the touring band. And then we recorded uh, Positively Dump Truck down in North Carolina at uh, Mitch Easter's studio with John Dixon producing. And uh, so we, I had done a bunch of touring. So we toured Diaz for Dump Truck. We did, we didn't go very far. I mean, we did like Midwest and did a lot of Eastern seaboard uh, in dates in the United States. Um, but the band got along horribly. I mean, you know, you talk about Lush. I mean, these guys, uh, they had started, the two main guys had started as friends, but um, I think, you know, it becomes a battle of egos and different personalities and they just didn't get along. So it was, it was kind of miserable to be caught in between that, be the bass player, you know, kind of like the bass player in Spinal Tap. Right. Um, so, water. yes. <laughs> <laughs> it was, uh, it was not the ideal situation, but you know, it was hard to leave because we were getting attention and we did, we recorded this album, which at the time was, uh, you know, big time records. Um, it seemed like the, there's a possibility that this, that we could become big time, you know? Yes. Um, but um, eventually it just got to be too much, too much drama. Um, you know, it went from the anger of, uh, of Volcano Suns into the moodiness of the dump truck. Yeah. And did you, um, I mean, had you left before things got a bit tricky with late record labels and... Oh, yeah. Yeah. I got, luckily, I got out. That was an awful story. I mean, that was, I guess that was, it. they recorded an album after I left. And and then I guess it would have been the one after that where the label sued them for breach of contract for like uh, $5 million or something like that, which essentially ground the band to a halt for years while they fought that in court which was a terrible shame because they could have, you know, obviously it was a, a suit that was designed to do that to the, to the band. It was just a, a nuisance suit by the guy. Yeah. And was it, is it the case when, when situations like that happen, is it better, would it have been better for the band to just say, okay, we're just not going to have the band and just form another band or, I mean, <laughs> what, 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 what does, what's that kind of mean when you say we're suing the band and if, if, if right. Yeah, if they dissolved the band, because they he sued. I mean, to be band, honest, the he, word the the name dump truck isn't a classic, is it? <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was decided before I got in the band, so uh, it yeah, is not, I know. I'm not, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not saying that was your idea, but I'm just no, saying no, it, it is, wouldn't. I agree. It could have been an easy one to walk away from if it meant you didn't have to go to the courts. <laughs> it's not the sexiest name, but it definitely had some, you know. Dump truck. <laughs> you don't forget it. That's I'll say that for. But yeah, I don't know what the legal thing was because they sued the principals, and um, I don't know if they could have walked away and just started a new band. Um, Seth has kept it going up to today. I mean, they still play shows, so I, I don't think he wanted to let go of it. I guess so. No. There you go. But it, it was. Uh, it was definitely the right time to, to get out of the band and the other guitarist Kirk got out right after I did. So, you know, there was obviously troubles in that band. Uh, <laughs> did they, it was did fun. They, it was Cause I remember, I remember Stuart Copeland, the, the drummer with the police and um, when they did that, sort of they reformed again, you know, for artistic reasons, but mostly for money, I think. Um, 
there was a lot of money, but they realised that everyone was having a great time for lots of reasons, apart from two members, which was Sting and Stuart. So they thought, you know, <laughs> I've heard those stories. Yeah, there's some and, great stories. And then they had band therapy. He said, you know, we had band therapy and talked it over yeah, and, yeah. and to just yeah. think, look, you know, if we can just keep it going, you know, the bank balance is going to... You know, I think every band should should have to be in therapy because, as you know, as you I'm sure learned from 500 plus episodes, it's a totally dysfunctional situation. And the people who come into it, uh, myself included, are not always the most, um, you know, evolved people. We're, you know, we're, like they said in Spinal Tap, it's like we're just trying to maintain our adolescence. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we just don't want to let go of that yes. and um so i think the, the idea of band therapy is you know especially when you have as much at stake as the police did um but i think it would have helped a lot of bands that i was in to actually talk but you see we were from boston and i think that's similar to being from england and um we just don't talk about our feelings no, God, let's bury them until it all gets to <laughs> <laughs> it's a It's a disaster. But then, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you must have seen that film with the Metallica one where they've got the therapist literally in the recording studio making suggestions about what to do. And, and, the, and the lead right. singer is obviously that's his kind of gig, you know, having this right, therapist. Right. And the rest of the band are thinking, <laughs> we're going to have to get rid of it because the therapist is kind of, you know, and it's like you're thinking, I think he's overstepping the mark. You know, I think he should be there listening. I'm not like telling the drummer what to be doing. Right. You should be playing a D there. <laughs> That's funny. I haven't seen that, but I remember hearing, uh, I, I love, you know, I'm not a big Sting fan. Um, uh, he always kept me from really enjoying the police. But I heard some things that like Stuart Copeland said to him from the drum kit or from the stage or in the recording. And I was just like, oh, man, that is just I just maybe want to hang out with Stuart Copeland. <laughs> Probably equally, you know, as annoying as Sting. But well, it was, I suppose it was an interesting dynamic from what Miles said was that Stuart thought it was his band. Problem yeah. is Sting <laughs> writes the songs. It's like you've got to you've got to sort of. You've got to sort of weigh that up, hasn't you? You know, it's a bit like he's the guy who's going to write that song that we want to hear. You might do a soundtrack for a film. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> but his brother's the manager, so there yeah. is that. <laughs> yeah, but then he wasn't part of the reunion, which I thought was quite surprising. Who wasn't? Miles wasn't part oh, of the he reunion. Wasn't? No. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I had a friend who worked for IRS records. So I got to hear some of those uh, Miles stories. It was not a, yeah, we'll leave that at that. <laughs> but, um, uh, but just to pick up the timeline um, for the sake of continuity, uh, when I left M Truck, it was probably like late 85, early 86. Uh, and then I got a call from my old mate, Gary, who had finished school and had some great news for me. He had become friends with Bill, the guitarist from The Embarrassment, who had moved to Boston to uh, go to school uh, to get his degree in painting, fine arts. And they were playing together and he invited me to, to join them. And I was thrilled because I, I was a huge Embarrassment fan, Gary and I both were. And um, I had seen them play early on in Boston when they came through and it was a fantastic show. They're kind of like the perfect marriage of like garage and punk and art rock. And they're funny, but not 
Jokey, and uh, that was a really good band. Um, I know you uh, admire them as well. Mm. And um, so when I heard that we got to play a bill, I was like, oh, shoot. I mean, that's kind of like, you know, that was, I was getting ready to, you know, not deal with music for a while. But when Gary invited me to play, we, you know, it was like such an opportunity to play with someone you admire. So we started practicing together and that kind of grew into uh, what became Big Dipper. Yes. And that is, is when things start to tick. And it seems like the sound of the band was pretty well there from the beginning. Well, it was definitely based on the guitars. Um, these, you know, it took a little while because these, both these guys had been guitarists in three pieces. Um, you know, well, Bill was in a four piece, but it was a singer and he played a little bit of organ, but mostly just sang. And Gary had been in the Volcano Sons where the guitar was, you know, it was all his. And Bill had been used to having, you know, so they had to kind of actually find a place to be with each other. They had very different styles. Uh, Gary's is more like wall of noise sounding, kind of very influenced by Mission to Burma and uh, lots of other influences. Um, and Bill had his kind of sound, which was, he had honed through the embarrassment, which was more like around the edges. You know, Gary was like straight down the middle of the road and Bill was kind of on the side of the road kind of adding things and um so it took a little while to to for them to find this space to be because they're used to being up front you know the main guy themselves yes but you got good press straight away didn't you i mean it I was, know, yeah. people started to get very excited yeah it was it was funny i mean it was on a small scale but it was very encouraging um and it was uh yeah it was it was kind of a very organic thing where we were like, we were just kind of doing it for fun. At first, just practicing it at, uh, we would drive up on the weekends to Jeff's house in the suburbs and get, we'd stop and get beer on the way. And then we'd go up there and play and we'd do covers and some old embarrassment songs, some old Volcano Sun songs and, uh, and a couple originals. And we made some radio tapes and, um, and they did get a lot of attention in Boston, which was possible back then. You could make just like a, bring a radio, a, a tape down to a radio station, the college stations, there was like four or five of them. And suddenly you could become, you know, well-known in town from the, from yes. the radio also, As you know, from the UK, it's really tiny, isn't it? I mean, people, and the thing is, I think, I don't know if it works the other way around, but we always get very excited about anything that's, you know, a long way away. So. You know, being one of those people. I mean, we even love Lydia Lunch for Christ's sake, because you know, she, you know we think, wow, that must be an arty person. But um, yeah, you do, don't you? And she looks great. So you know, you always go, oh, I've just discovered this really obscure band from America, Big Dipper, and they're on Homestead Records. Which did you also? Was that also Demon Records? Did it get licensed? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So we had. Um... Uh, when we came over to England the first time, which is uh, 88, we, uh, Homestead was trying to get uh, a licensing deal over there so we could play more shows over there. And one of the, we met with Fire Records and um, I don't want to say Creation, but that could be wrong. We met with a bunch of labels. What about Anna McGee? Did you meet Anna McGee? What label was that? Creation. That was creation. I don't remember. I have, 
somewhere in my diary, we, we had all these conversations, but the, the only thing that, the only offer that ever came back was uh, from Demon and um, they agreed to license the new record, which was coming out that fall, which would turn out to be Craps, and then uh, also licensed Heavens. Um, but, you know, the whole, the whole Demon story is kind of a, a mess too, because we, we came back in 89 and um, we and we had the record, you know, they, they were actually promoting it in England and we were played some English shows. And we did actually did like a tour of uh, England, starting in London, ending in London. But the, uh, I don't think the record did as well as they thought it would. So at the beginning of the tour, they were very excited and welcomed us into their, uh, warehouse, I don't know where it was based, it was somewhere outside of London. And they were very friendly, but then by the time we came back to, at the end of the tour, and it was obvious that no matter what we did, we weren't gonna be selling as many records as they hoped we were going to be selling. Uh, they wanted nothing to do with us. <laughs> they were like, just go down the pub here, you know, and have some lunch down the pub. We, we're, we're busy, we're in a meeting. <laughs> I remember Spike, uh, Spike was our contact there and he was very nice to us at the beginning and then we became persona non grata. So uh, it was good to get the record out in England. It meant we could, you know, yes, play there. And that was a big thrill for us, obviously, to be on Elvis's, uh, Elvis and uh, Jake's label. Yes. Uh, that was, I don't know what the label was like over there, but it was exciting for us. Yeah, I heard a sort of kudos, but I suppose Demon, I don't know, I don't know what sort of attitude it was. Demon Records. Who else was on it? You said Elvis. Well, I know like they released some Elvis stuff and some like Elvis adjacent stuff, and um, they're mostly a distributor, I think. Yeah. We, they had a big warehouse full of records, and they told us to go shopping, which was nice. Yeah. Uh, but but um, it wasn't. I suppose at that time there was you know rough trade with the obvious ones, and then there was right you right. know fire records, and then there was obviously creation records, and then there was a lot of little ones like Vindaloo, but that was kind of tiny, and then the pink label that was really tiny, and then eventually people like Sarah Records. So I suppose I'm probably missing loads of other record labels. I am, but anyway, never mind. Did you also tour Europe as well? We did actually. Um, I'm in the middle of. Um, I can't, I don't run the well. I. I'm like the main contributor to the band's Facebook page. I've been trying to, uh, Facebook, whether love it or hate it, it, it is a good way to kind of keep your band alive, you know. It's it's gonna, it's better than Friends Reunited, put it that way. It lasted <laughs> a lot longer, didn't it? I mean, yeah, you know, however much people kind of publicize they're going to leave Facebook, you think, well, just, you don't have to go on the side, just go, just go. And they come back again, get on back. You think, oh, not needy at all, are they? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but it's, uh, we, you know, we, uh, we started putting some more attention into this uh, Facebook page for the band recently. Um, we've had a couple of songs in movies. Uh, we had the reissue in 2008. So when uh, Merge Records put out the stuff in 2008, uh, kind of, coincided with the rise of Facebook and um, uh, but lately as a way to kind of generate some content for the page I've been uh, doing these uh, tour diaries where I um, go back into my diaries and notes I have a, a book from um, that I kept back in the day that has all of our shows in it oh my and, God, uh, fantastic 
don't know who we played with and where we played and how much we played. Oh, here's it. We played on uh, on um, Mar uh, May 26th in London, England at the Sir George Roby. Nice. With some Welsh band. And then we went to Brighton and then we played the London School of Economics with House of Love. Okay. And then we flew home. <laughs> there you go. That is, that is so, great. Uh, and who was, so, your, who was your person who dealt with your uh, European tour? It wasn't a guy called Thomas, somebody, was it? Uh, we were booked, I don't know the English stuff, um, but the European stuff was booked by Paperclip in Holland and Suma in Germany. And it's pretty much the only two places we ever played. It was uh, Holland and Germany. Really wanted to go to France and Spain, but in uh, Italy, but... Um, Apparently there wasn't enough interest to get us there. And uh, it was a little bit, you know, uh, not, not the greatest. The tours we did over there were not well attended, let's just say. We played some good shows, but um, I don't think anyone had heard of us. You know, they, they would book us. The way we got booked in Holland and Germany was the, the poster would have our name in, in tiny letters. And then it would say, uh, from Boston, home of the Pixies and Dinosaur Jr. And that's kind of how we were marketed in in the European market for a while. But yes. we did get a good review in uh, Enemy. I think that was what spurred the whole thing. Um, was a couple of good reviews in the the um, sounds and Enemy and what was the other one? There was Melody Maker sounds. Melody Maker, and, yeah. And there was Record Mirror as well. Because that's the thing about the UK. We have those. We had those gatekeepers, didn't we? We had right. you know the three <laughs> weekly music papers. Then we had John Peel, who was this kind of fantastic yes. kind of. DJ that you know you got to play on the John Peel show you'd get another sort of kick and an audience well not a kick but you know a bit of a lift and then you know as I always say you know every little town and city in the UK had a had had an indie night didn't they so you could sort of get that little circuit and have a tour of 20 days yeah it's much know. harder in America I mean we if we had had like a situation like like a central DJ like you had with Peel who was a big influence I think it would have been a lot easier, but you know, every town had a John Peel. We had our John Peel, his name was Oedipus. He went by the name Oedipus. Um, and, um, but then he had like, you know, 50 states and two or three cities in each state. And they, they each were their own little England. And we were like, we came over to England and we were like one, you know, two reviews. And we we're like, we were like the toast of the town for a little yes, while. Yes, absolutely. And, that, and that's the thing that often, breaks a lot of those British bands up that I've interviewed is, is you know, like there's the five-year narrative, which, you you know, I'll probably right. say. Yes. We, we, we hit the five-year on the mark, I think. <laughs> and, and one of the reasons for breaking up, apart from the dynamics of the band, the lack of money, it's also when anybody ever said, oh, yeah, we toured America. And the next line is, you know, then we broke up when we got home. It was just... <laughs> It just is, yes, lush, definitely. Um, but it just seems to break people. They just don't have that. I didn't realize it was going to be quite that hard. And it was going right. To... It's a lot of driving, and there's a lot of like you know when you leave Seattle and you're going like back east is a long. That's a long trip before you get anywhere that's going to be interested. <laughs> yes, and I kind of think we that... played with the uh, we played with the Mighty Lemon Drops, and I think it was towards the very end of their career. But you could tell they were like not having as much fun like we were kind of on the way up and they were kind of a year later we were in the same position as the mighty lemon drops um but you could tell that they you know they had the roadies doing their sound check for them they had like 
stopped doing sound check and right i mean we had a great time they were very nice guys but uh but as but as dear old miles said you know the the police the most important gig they had was in america with four four members in the audience and <laughs> and, and one of them was this dj who was quite influential and then picked up and then you know the guy from a and a a and m records kind of saw this kind of chart and went oh this looks quite an interesting band so you know playing in front of four people I'm not sure if they even, you know, was the most important gig in the in the career of the police. Yeah, so it's kind of four people, right? Yeah, you, you just never know who, which one of those is. But your second album, Craps, which has a, fun, I do love the cover. I think that is so. Oh, thank, yeah, that was my idea. Thank you. I was, was a graphic it? designer for the band, and Bill was kind of our in-house painter. Wow, that uh, is really, and I think it's because of the Las Vegas vibe. But it's right. such a great cover. Where did that idea come from? Um, we had been, when we toured Heavens, the album before, um, we had gone to Las Vegas. We actually insisted that um, we had time off because, like I said, once you leave the West Coast and start heading back east, there's a, a lot of map there before you get somewhere uh, to play, uh, back in those days anyway. And so we said, well, we've got this time off. You know, we've got to be here in Los Angeles. Then we have to be in Kansas and a week later. Let's just, we want to spend some time in Las Vegas. So we went there and we all kind of split, you know, went our separate ways and got uh, motel rooms or hotel rooms. I think the girlfriends flew in um, and for the long weekend. And then um, Bill which, went to Which see, hotel did you stay in? Well, I stayed at the cheapest. Oh, no, <laughs> I, was I was staying in like a Motel 6. Uh, oh, nice. No, like, $20. Yeah, by the airport. I wasn't into the bargain thing, I think. Uh, the guys, the other guys might have stayed in. I know Bill went to see uh, Frank Sinatra play that while we were in Las Vegas. That was nice. a big thrill for him. Um, but, but I came, I was fascinated by Vegas and I took that picture that's on the cover. Uh, it was actually a picture that I took of my girlfriend on the uh, downtown Las Vegas. And I just kind of conveniently cropped her out and uh, turned it in, blew it up and, and Bill hand painted the cover. Uh, because Bill had done the cover of Heavens too. That was a Bill painting. Right. Uh, but I was a, my job at the time was graphic designer. So I just naturally fell into uh, designing the layout and the type, which was a lot of fun to have oh, that. Oh, that's fantastic. Because, you know, that's that's my favorite city in the world is Las Vegas. So, oh, uh, good. Yeah, yeah. We, we actually hit that uh, uh, obsession around the same time that um, the video for, the YouTube video came out where they Street did that. Yeah. 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 And so that was a little inconvenient that we were <laughs> lumped in with them. But yeah, it was, uh, yeah. So Craps was like our, our last album for Homestead contractually fulfilled our obligation to Homestead. And then we, uh, our manager was very, um, uh, he had big plans for us. He thought this is the time to, um, you know, make the big jump. You guys have done all you can do on, <laughs> on an independent record label and it's time for a major label. And we we're like, oh, okay. Uh, it sounds a little scary, but, you know, we are all <clears throat> willing to listen to offers. And, um, and we recorded by a couple or two or three different, you know, three different labels in America. And um, that was kind of fun to, you know, go out to dinner and, 
have them buy you dinner and wine and yes <clears throat> and wasn't it a nice was it i don't know about nice but was it a good vibe recording craps because it does still sound great to this day doesn't it? <laughs> well thank you it's funny that in england and i think just because of the demon thing like craps is a, a bigger record um I'm actually more of a fan of Heavens. Like I think we hit our peak in Heavens uh, with songwriting and production, although I'd love to change some things about the production. But perhaps it's like a bigger record, like the guitars were bigger, uh, the production was bigger. I am a little, and I'll be honest, it's a personal thing. It's like, I'm much more proud of my songs on Heavens than I am of my song on uh, Craps. Right. Um, so, you know, it's a selfish thing. I do think that I, if I had to pick a favorite Big Dipper song, uh, one that I had nothing to do with uh, writing, it was be Ron Klaus wrecked his house, right. uh, which is a Gary and Bill song. And, um, and so perhaps has my favorite Big Dipper song on it. I like um, Lincoln and Witch and um, some Jazzy again, songs I had nothing to do with writing. Um, but it's, uh, I don't know. I felt like we kind of cheated the fans because we only had nine songs on there and we put uh, a song, Song to be Beautiful, which is a fine song, but it was like an old Volcano Sun song and we just kind of re-recorded it. Um, so I did, you know, it's, it's kind of a classic thing, I think, where the band doesn't have time to write enough songs because you're on the road so much. Right. It's kind of a cliche. Um, and as a songwriter's band, a band that was a self-professed like songwriters cooperative thing, where we had three songwriters who were contributing, um, it was kind of embarrassing that we could only come up with nine songs. And, yeah, I know. Elvis Costello could have whipped 20 out in a... I know. Well, we, were <laughs> <laughs> we just didn't have the, you know, I can't write songs like Bill could go home and write a song. But I, I can't write songs until I'm, you know, or at that time when I was writing, uh, I, I felt like I had to be inspired by something. Sure. So it was hard to write, it was hard to write songs for me. And uh, Bill is much uh, easier. He was kind of more of a craftsman in that way. Um, and Gary, Gary probably leaned more towards my thing. He didn't write as many songs as, as Bill did. So, um, but, when you, and when you came to recording, you know, the, the third album, which was on a major epic mm -hmm. record, I mean, you'd been together for quite a few years and been in the music game as well. Were you flagging a bit during that stage? <laughs> Can you hear it? <laughs> well, it's just, I mean, you know, I mean, it always looks, when you're young, you just think that must be amazing. But then as you get older and you obviously hear the stories of being in the band people do just kind of go we were tired it was getting really right. you know and I just wondered how you were coping and also the other thing is that the musical world had started changing again hadn't it not the yes. form of music but you know like 87 I always put down you know it was a great year of music I mean though the albums that came out in 87 were fantastic but then the Smith breakup my oh. god and then ecstasy comes along. There's definitely a vibe that, you know, okay, that yeah, chapter is now closing. Yeah. You know, yeah. suddenly there's all the kind of the ravey bands that are coming. Everyone, you know, the next group of 16 to 18 year olds are looking for their band. They're, not, they're right, no longer right. interested in the Beatles or the Sex Pistols or the Smiths. They, <laughs> they want to they wanna take drugs and do that stuff and, and blah, Maybe. blah. And then, right. you know, we had the Seattle sign that came as, along as well. So I just was wondering, by the time you came on to your 
third album, you know, it was the 1990. It's a, it's a kind of not funny ha-ha period, but it's kind of a lot of change happening and suddenly, yeah. you know, Seattle's starting I think, to... Yeah. I think that's a fair point. It was before the major Seattle sound thing hit, I think. It was like a year or so before that. But, but definitely I agree that music was changing and that um, the bands were starting to get signed to majors like Sonic Youth uh, was, was getting signed to uh, DGC and um, there were other bands who were like the Feelies, I think got signed at that time to A&M. Uh, so things, you know, th things were starting to get more serious. I, I agree. And I think music was changing. Um, and, you know, I look at this, as I've been doing this diary, I look at how many shows we played in 1988 and 89. And um, it, it, it was a lot. I mean, we were constantly on the road. Our manager was, um, was encouraging us to do that, to kind of get in front of more people. And plus we had started paying ourselves in the band. So we, we suddenly had a monthly nut that we had to make um, to support the, you know, I was making all $400 a month. So it was a huge amount of money. Yes. Back then, you know, I could pay the rent, buy food and uh, um, somehow survive on that for, for a year, which was nice. Um, but yeah, I would say we were tired. We were kind of, you know, we were under a lot of pressure uh, to make this leap because there weren't, been, you know, nowadays there's labels like Matador and Merge who kind of fill that middle void. You know, they, mm. can, they can sell records. I mean, the, the, I mean, the reason why we wanted to leave Homestead was not because of uh, anything creative. It was just that they didn't have the distribution. You know, it's like we'd play record, we'd play shows and the records would not be in the town. Jeez, that is so Spinal Tap. Yes, it was very frustrating. And, you know, it's not the fault of the record. It's, you know, the whole American music uh, distribution record label thing was was still in its infancy. And um, now you have, like, you know, when we dealt with Merge, it's like they have an incredible reach. And uh, Matador, you know, their distribution deals with majors, so they're in the stores and it was uh yeah so it was frustrating we wanted to we felt like if people heard our music if people could actually buy our music mm. and hear it on the radio they might like it you know we thought we never thought we were anything but a you know pop band with a maybe a little bit more of an edge or but um yeah okay getting back to your original point yeah we were a little bit uh burnt out and when we went into the studio there was tension starting uh um, this is another cliche that drives me crazy. It's like, I remember hearing like when Edie Brickell and the New Bohemian, New Bohemians. Yes. When they, um, they were like a local band at one time, somewhere, wherever they were based. Yes. And then when the label signed them, then the label's coming in and saying, oh, well, you need to get a new drummer and you need to, you know, you guys have to take lessons and you have to, guitarists got to learn to play better and you got to start dressing nicer and blah, blah, blah. And, and we were we were just sure that not, none of this was going to happen to us. I mean, Big Dipper was we were such a tight group and uh, all friends, and we were just like, well, we're not going to fall for any of this crap. <laughs> and we fell for everything. <laughs> uh, so um, there was, I mean, musically in the band, um, I was definitely the weak link musically speaking. I mean, I wrote songs and I wrote some uh, songs that had gotten attention. So. Um, 
I, I had some value in the band, but as a musician, I was definitely the weakest member because I had never, uh, I'm not really a musician, not the way that Bill and Gary and Jeff are. I was just one of those guys like Pete Townsend who wanted to be in a band. So I picked up the guitar as a way to meet girls. That's um, Lenny. Was, oh yeah. I mean, I was not alone for sure, but, <laughs> but I just say, I just like never, I mean, I was an adequate bass player, but never a. Uh, John Entwistle. No, not like that. I, I would have loved that, but um, yeah, I just have no musical ear. I'm one of those people who can't sing and who can't, really carry a tune at all so um it was a challenge for me but i i faked it for many years i was in bands for like 10 years so um oh but the, the that was one of the reasons why i was in i got into bands is i owned my own pa system a vocal pa system and that was the smartest thing i ever did was uh early on i bought this this pa system for pretty cheaply and carried that around with me for many years so when it was like comes down to two bass players at the audition. I was the one with the PA, which nobody had. I think I got a lot of gigs that way. Yes, smart <laughs> move. <laughs> but anyway, uh, yeah, so there became tension in the band over my musicianship and um, and personal things. You know, was, you know, I'm not, none of us were easy to be in bands with. I mean, uh, to be together because we were, you know, it's kind of, you know, the Beatles like set the tone for that. It was like, you you start out and you get along great and you're all best friends. But then as you get older, you you grow apart and you realize your personality differences are yes. bigger than you thought. So not to compare us to the Beatles. <laughs> um, but I'm, I'm rambling, but yeah, so it was, um, there was tension when we when we went in with Slam, and of course the pressure because we went from a three thousand dollar budget for our last Homestead records to like a thirty five thousand dollar budget. And you got a different. <laughs> and, and this time, who was the producer on this one? Oh yeah, so that was the other thing. We made we we interviewed a bunch of producers. I mean, I just wish I could have gone back and like we just didn't stop and think, and we just you know I I would have loved to have picked a done like kind of a traditional thing of like picked a musician that we liked and um and someone who understood us like say like uh john langford i would have that that's like in hindsight uh, john langford produced this record yes which is what i would like but uh, no we ended up um kind of picking from the minor leagues of uh, people who were engineers who wanted to make the jump up to producers who had been on indie records and this one guy um oh it was named steve hagler and he had worked for the pixies he had done like engineer work for the pixies and his home studio happened to be reflection studios in uh charlotte which is where uh rem recorded one of their albums and um so we ended up choosing him and, and he was kind of an uninspired choice he didn't really know the band he didn't understand the band he um pushed some things on us that you know sounded cool at the time but now in hindsight we kind of would regret but you know i don't think he was ready to to produce an album maybe you know what do i know i, I wasn't ready to produce an album either but um we never worked with a producer we'd only worked with engineers and yeah had, you know so we chose to, chose him and he was affordable and uh, worked in a cool place. 
And we thought it was fine when we uh, recorded it. We came home full of, um, you know, good feelings about it for the most part, even though it had been a kind of a tense thing. We were like, okay, well, that's done. We got a good record out. Now we'll put it out and tour, and this will be our chance to become big, big stars. <laughs> and uh, fast forward, it didn't work out that way. No. Were you disappointed when you heard the sound? Uh, when I heard the the finish you know the album oh yeah well you know i thought i thought it was fine I, you know i i was surprised i was disappointed by people's reaction to it because i guess it was slick i mean we we had decided you know to make a record that sounded like what we wanted it to sound like it was um and with this big budget we could finally do that you know because the other albums had just been affairs we'd, we'd go in and record as we could and quickly as we could and get in and get out um and this gave us the budget gave us a chance to make some you know put some things on there and spend some time with these songs and i thought that would help but i don't i guess in the in the long run it didn't because it's um it ended up disappointing our old fans and not really uh gaining us any new fans yes and did you um who came up with the idea of doing the the cover of mop the hoopals all the way <sighs> all the way from memphis <laughs> Why? What do you think about that? <laughs> <laughs> it was just, I know David Bowie, you know, to give you, you know, though he's amazing and I was so pleased that he was my first single and my first love and, you know, he was amazing. But he always done really terrible covers, actually, mostly. <laughs> and, um, you know, you just have a listen to something. See where this is going. Um, so, yes, who, who sort of went, this is a good idea? <laughs> Um, well, we had been a band who always liked, uh, to doing cover versions. In fact, when we started out, like one of the first songs we ever did was, um, in practice was, uh, like Junior's Farm by Paul McCartney. And then we, then we started doing Jet. We played Jet a lot, oh, actually. what a song. Yeah. Great song. It was a lot of fun to play. It was one chord, you know, pretty much one chord the whole way through, um, but we played a lot of weird covers um, over the course of our uh, career live. Um, we hadn't really recorded any, um, but we did like a Who's Could Do cover. We did a Fleetwood Mac cover. We did, you know, Hank Williams. We did Big Black. I mean, we we just would learn the songs that we liked. Like if we heard a song in the van we liked, um, like we learned um, uh, Lucinda Williams, uh, Passionate Kisses. Oh, stunning. On Rough Trade. Yes, that was an absolute classic. We learned that at Soundcheck and played it as an encore that night. So it was kind of like a casual thing for us. We like to play covers. Um, just to break up the monotony of playing our, our own songs. And um, actually, one of my favorite covers we played was uh, Handle with Care by the Traveling Wilburys. Right. Which... Uh, it sounds dumb, but um, it actually worked out good because it had three different singers on it. And Bill would take Roy Orbison's part and Gary did George Harrison. And then uh, Jeff and I would team up on the Bob Dylan, that Tom Petty part. But anyway, getting back to uh, the uh, Mott the Hoople. So this was just a song we were born one day in the studio and Gary starts playing that piano part. And of course we all love that song. And so we're like, oh, show me the chords, show me the chords. And we start playing it and, um, and so we recorded it and just had it there we weren't thinking of putting it on the record and then the record company guy came down to check in 
And uh, he's like, what have you been doing? And, and we're like, oh, you got to hear this. This is hilarious. And we played it, which, you know, was an off the cuff cover of uh, All the Way from Memphis. Um, and he's like, oh, that's great. You got to put that on the record. And we're like, no, 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 no. <laughs> no. I mean, we had done it as a figuring it could be a B-side of a single or something. And uh, but he was, you know, footing the bill and talked us into it. Um, and, you know, I I do regret having it on there, um, partially because we had to pay up front. We had to pay Ian Hunter up front, like twenty five hundred dollars out of our cut of the publishing, which uh, was a shock <laughs> <laughs> when the check came and we're like, what happened to the, this? You know, oh, no. Well, it, you know. Ian Hunter gets his share and he's like, fuck, he owes me a beer when he, <laughs> when, when I meet him. Uh, but uh, I also liked the performance. Like it was the last thing, one of the last, we put the vocals on like the last thing and Bill had lost his voice and uh, Jeff fills in with some of the, uh, some of the choruses and um, the tagline. And so even though when I hear it, I'm kind of embarrassed because it was a dumb idea and it put focus on a song that shouldn't have been on the album. Because anytime you do a cover, it's going to get attention like that. Um, but I still I listen to it and I hear a lot of joy in the in the performance. It was probably like the the song where we had the most fun on the record. Like everything else, we were like, oh, we got to get this right. We got to get this right. And then we start playing that song and we're like, fuck it, we just we're just going to go balls out on this. Uh, play a song that we love that was a boyhood favorite of all of ours and and then tack on a saxophone solo and Gary was playing keyboards which he never did and, um, so it was just kind of fun to hear yourself playing a Mata Hoople song yes know, fan of the band and it it doesn't it doesn't appear on Supercluster does it it doesn't what it doesn't appear on your your uh, Supercluster anthology does it no yeah so the the problem with the so that stuff was owned by all the slam stuff is owned still by Sony. Um, we had to get special permission to put a demo version of um, Life in the Cemetery on there, but everything else, you know, we didn't really want to relive that part of the of our career. So that stuff is mostly the Homestead stuff on the Supercluster CD. Yes, um, but uh, it was. You know, it was unfortunately yeah, that we recorded that album and did the tour. And then by the end of the tour, I was uh, done with the band and and left the band. So it was kind yeah. of you know, a sad time for me. Yeah, absolutely. Did the rest of the band, did they also decide? No, no, they stayed on, um, got a new bass player and uh, kept going. I played uh, our last show on saturday and then on tuesday i was on a plane to san francisco i moved to san francisco um, which is something i'd wanted to do i was tired of boston winters and wanted to live in california yes absolutely and did it um and to and did and did the band continue for much longer after that um i don't know the exact timeline i'm thinking it was like at least two years so they recorded an album or they recorded a bunch of songs as demos and then sent them to uh, Sony and Sony kind of strung them along and finally dropped them. And then they started looking for another label, but nobody, you know, like I said, you said things had changed by that time. Things had definitely changed. That was like post Nirvana. Yes. 
and uh, things had definitely changed and nobody was interested in a little pop band from Boston anymore. And was and with your musical world, did that, or your San Francisco trip, did that mean that you put the bass in the cupboard for a bit? <laughs> well, I meant to. I brought it with me, of course, but um, I mean, when I left there, I was like, I, I just had decided at that point to go back to school uh, and actually get a real job because it, it, one of the lessons I learned from the, um, being on the in the band and on the major label and all that stuff is like I really didn't have the musical chops to cut it in this world. Um, so I figured if I'm going to ever make a living and <laughs> get uh, get some money in my pocket, I had to get a real job. So. I had decided to go back to nursing school and get my uh, degree in nursing. Um, but I did feel the pull when I moved out there, I got invited to play uh, some people who had known me. I played with Barbara Manning's band. Um, are you familiar with Barbara Manning's music? No, no. Yeah, an American folk singer. Um, she has put out a lot of records. Um, she actually did some stuff later on with the um, guys from Young Marble Giants. Right, Stuart. And, and she works with um, some of the New Zealand bands too and does her own solo stuff. Um, and then there's another guy who called me to play bass uh, in his band called, uh, named Richard Buckner. And Richard Buckner is kind of like a country Western kind of guy. Um, he went on to record a lot of albums uh, for many different labels. He's kind of a big deal in the American um, cowboy, you know, cow uh, country, new country kind of world. Um, Americana? Yeah, I guess you'd call it that. Yeah, he, he's a singer songwriter. He's a very interesting dude, writes great songs, uh, very intense personality. Um, that was an interesting band to be in, too. Um, but after that, then I was like, okay, now I, I need to focus on school and um, and I didn't, I got my degree and started working, started having, I had a family, started a business. And then I got the call from Gary that uh, Merge was going to put out this um, compilation in 2008. And that was really the first time I picked up the bass in, you know, like 15 years. Yes. And we went back to Boston and played a show in Boston, a couple shows in New York. And, um, that was a lot of fun to, to play the songs again. And uh, I got to play some of the songs they had written after I left the band that I was a fan of. So that was fun to do. So uh, without, without sounding a bit too touchy-feely, did that feel like a bit of a healing moment, a sort of completion? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a very sweet way of saying it. Actually, um, yeah, it was kind of because the band, we had been friends and then the friendship had kind of fallen apart and we stayed in touch and uh, over the years. And um, and Gary, I think Gary really felt that, too, that he wanted to put a positive spin on the end of the band mm. kind of like close it down with not in the way that, you know, because it was kind of a an ugly end to things. You know, we did. I didn't throw anything or punch anybody in the face, uh, but um, uh, but it was not a, you know, when we, when I left the band in 1990, it was not a happy time. Um, so in 2008, Gary, you know, we were all more mature. We were more, we were all family, uh, man, family men there and had careers and other jobs. And 
um, those guys had still played music. But anyway, Gary, Gary made a point of gathering us at the end of the last show in a very sweet moment and say, look, you know, I just want to say that this, this is the way the band, I want to remember the band. I don't want to remember the slam tour. I don't want to remember all those bad feelings. I want to remember this, you know, good feeling of us together. And, uh, and, you know, then it devolved and, you know, dissolves into tears and hugging. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I know you didn't even have to socially distance or have a mask. You could have. Right. <laughs> oh, that was, that's great. And, uh, and did the, did the compilation, did you, did that sort of go down well? I mean, in, in the sense of, cause, cause I sort of had mentioned slightly at the beginning that what I found is there's a kind of a, passing of time which I think is about 25 to 30 years where something happens we all move on for various reasons and then you look back and think actually that's quite good and so there was all these you know like these photographic books that have come out from a scene from you know right, the right. 70s and there's another couple of books that came out on fanzines of the 80s and people have started writing books and and you must have seen there's all these kind of documentary rock documentaries almost on tap isn't it you know there was one on the wedding present doing George Best there's one on the chills the go-betweens has got one I mean the yes. nightingales have just had a you know so there's all these bands that you think god this is amazing you know people have looked at their body of work and went actually this is really good you know but I think we take it for granted and I just wondered if with the passing of time you know and that compilation coming out people have have sort of rediscovered the band or have discovered it for the first time I think so. It sold much better than any of our records. We sold out of our uh, pressing and they did a physical pressing of like 5,000 CDs. Um, and it continues to sell well and the downloads, um, which is the only way you can get it now. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, do, I do think that people, you know, any of those retrospective compilations give people a chance to like stop and say, oh, okay, well, this when you listen to this stuff, it, um, I always thought we were slightly ahead of our time in mixing like noise and pop. Um, but I think that there was a, a, a kind of revisiting of our, of our place in, in musical history. And we came and went so fast. We were five years pretty much. Mm. Um, that, uh, yeah, I think that's a good way to say it. I think people, we got great reviews. Um, people came out to see the band play live and seemed to have a good time. It certainly was a lot of fun for us. Um, I think there's, you know, we, we always kind of felt like, you know, we kept in touch over the years and we'd be once in a while, we'd send each other a song from YouTube or something. And we'd be like, this is a total ripoff of our music. It's like, what the, I'm kid, you know, like the, the, um, what was that band? Uh, uh, River, Cuomo, the Sweater People. What band is that? There's some like American band. And they, when they came out, um, they sounded just like Big Dipper. And they, of course, they got huge. It was like 93, 94. And um, what were they called? You know this band. <laughs> <laughs> you could have to give me some more than Sweater. Um, oh, they had the song... Uh, with the Buddy Holly video, Buddy Holly song. Oh, bloody hell. No, still not, still not happening for me. Buddy Holly. And they had a big uh, hit with that, Buddy Holly. 
and <laughs> this is the only way I can remember anything now is to Google. Yes, I know. God. Uh, it's not pavement, but it's something like pavement. <laughs> I sound terribly old. Um, anyway, they're not worth remembering, but they get, you know, we, we felt like other bands had kind of walked in our footsteps. Yes. Uh, there well, were a I, lot of bands who credited us, you know, and said, you guys were an influence. And we're like, okay. Well, it's interesting in the UK, you know, we had Brit pop and I suppose, well, not suppose, but a lot of the people who were in those bands had gone to all those indie bands in the 80s, the C86 bands, and mm -hmm. well, that's marvellous. You know, and obviously, you know, at the time in the 80s, I mean, the independent charts were great, but they didn't sell huge amounts. And Top of the Box was full of people like Tina Turner and Dire Straits and Sade yeah. and Brian Duran. But then, you know, the, the Britpop bands come along and, and they, you know, it's just, it's, is a little bit more safer than what the indie bands of the 80s were. But, you know, they're yeah, the pops and they're selling yeah. millions of records and they've become these huge stars. But you're thinking, this is kind of a little bit watered down from, you know, what I remember. But, you know, good luck to them. But <laughs> Good luck, kid. Weezer, that's a band. Weezer. Weezer, right. God, people yeah. love that band so oh much. Oh, my God, yeah, it's embarrassing. Only, only yeah. Americans love that band. The UK, they're not so popular. But well, good I on do... you. That's good. I know you guys have better taste than that. But I do remember um, a few Americans or who still live in, who, who live in Norwich and they always go on about bloody Weezer, you know, and I, I, don't, I don't quite get them, you know, because I love, they might be giants, but mm -hmm. I don't know, Weezer were the band, weren't they, that everyone sort of adored. So, um, oh, God, yeah. No, oh, yeah, just, and so just, I also just mentioned at the beginning, you know, the, the Smiths film that came out, which was, um, was it Shop? Yeah. Just, Shoplifters of the world, yeah. Of the world. So you managed to get a track on the soundtrack. Yeah, so this is actually one of the nicest things about uh, signing with Merge is they hooked us up with this company uh, that does licensing for TV and movies. Yes. And so we were, we got a, one of our songs, early on we got a song in a Rob Lowe movie. And we were all excited because we figured, oh, Rob Lowe, you know, that, and it, but it was a terrible, depressing, awful movie and nobody saw it. Um, so we cashed a check and moved on. Um, Cause you know, we figured you can make a lot of money from a hit movie if you yes. have a song that's part of a hit movie. And then we had a song in a, a Matthew McConaughey movie, which we also thought, oh, this will be great. This is big. And um, it opened and closed on the same weekend. Right. Just a terrible movie. So then, uh, and then this, uh, we got contacted about the Smiths and this was before the, uh, the lockdown for the pandemic. And so there was a long period where we, you know, they were interested, but it wasn't coming out because of the pandemic. Um, but yeah, they asked for all going out together and uh, it's in the scene, I think where they go to the party, I think like they leave, she leaves a record store and they the four friends get together and then they go to the party and it's actually, they plays for like a minute and a half or something like that. Nice. And, oh, and, uh, my, yeah. It was pretty cool. It was fun to be. I mean, considering that most of the soundtrack was the Smiths. Yes. Uh, it was nice to be mixed in there. And, uh, that was a big thrill. And plus, we made a little bit of money. But I don't think anyone, it's not like a, because the theaters are closed down, I don't think a lot of people are seeing the movie. So. No. And I do. And there is that story you mentioned, Elvis Costello, but there was um, Nick Lowe wrote What's So Funny About Peace and Love and Understanding. 
that obviously gets picked up and he's on a soundtrack, you know, one of those soundtracks that's the biggest selling soundtrack of all time, virtually. And obviously Nick Lowe just goes, right, that's me done. I'm fine. You know, <laughs> so, and, and I'm not even the person who's singing the song on the, on the right. soundtrack itself. But I've written that little beauty. So I think, yes, that's I think it was, was it the, I think it was the bodyguard or some, one of those ones. It was like, Oh God. Yeah. Yeah, that's what you want. You want Whitney Houston. That was it. And it was amazing. I mean, I did an interview with the guy who wrote the book recently on Nick Lone, and it's an amazing story of how that song gets to be on the soundtrack as well. It's one of those, you know, (laughs) absolute moments that, you know, they're looking for another song. And I think the the guy who runs the record label just said, he was in a bar, he heard a song, he said, oh, this is quite nice. Right, right. So random. It's yeah. really random and it's like, okay, let's put it on. <laughs> you know, it's not going to be that big probably, so don't worry about it. You know, it's like, okay. <laughs> it's, um, and there you yeah, go. The mailbox, it's mailbox money, we like to call it. Yeah. Just, uh, you don't have to work for it. You just have to reach into the mailbox. And there you go. Nice one. So look, last question. What if you could have said something to a 16 or 18 year old self starting <laughs> out? I know it's a classic, isn't it? Sorry about that. Um, just, to, um, you know, if it, it says, you know, with the, you know, cause you've, you know, you've done albums, tours, you know, you've been in the band, you've, you know, been in a, out of a band, had all that experience. I mean, is there something that you would have just wanted to whisper to yourself, whether it was like the positive, yeah, that was great. Or actually I'd have done that slightly different if I was in <laughs> look out for this um well i don't think a 16 or 18 year old self would listen to my 60 year old white (laughs) old dude (laughs) (laughs) some old dude but if i did no i think i think we touched upon it in the um in the in the interview it's like i I would have talked more you know i grew up in such a closed family and society where talking was not encouraged and so you get into these situations where you could, you know, problems could be solved. Relationships couldn't be salvaged by talking, but instead, like you said, you just kind of close down and, and let it fall apart instead. So, uh, you know, I would have liked to have uh, had somebody tell me, you know, you could, I bet your life would be a lot better if you just talk and, and say what you're thinking, say what you're feeling like big dipper, I think would have probably survived a lot longer if, um, if we uh, talked about our problems instead of just, you know, going into our own little cocoons. Yes. So there you go. That, that would be my advice to, to young students. Sharon Kerr. That's it, isn't it? Sharon Kerr. <laughs> it is good. Band therapy. That's what we needed, really. Wasn't that's it? right. I'm going to, that's what I'm going to, that's my next thing. I'm going to start doing band therapy. Yeah, I know. $100 like... an hour. <laughs> finally make some money that would be yeah that would be nice but look well look this is great well thank you ever so much for giving well, me thank you David, for having me on it's an honor to be on the show it's a great show i enjoy listening to all the episodes that i've discovered so far and i'm gonna keep going until i get to all 500 jesus there's a good one have you, <laughs> have you seen the one with david newton yes i listen to david newton i love that uh, he, he's such a funny funny guy he and I have a lot in common and enjoy uh, chatting with him on Facebook. I still haven't met him. Well, I did meet him back in 1988 or 89. Yes. He lives in LA now, so hopefully some I'll meet him soon. And isn't John Langford plus 
Oh, Sally Timms. Are they both in Chicago? I think. Yeah, they're in Chicago. Yeah, I actually got to talk to them uh, at um, they Mekon's played in Seattle uh, uh, right before everything closed down, and I went up to both of them and I I said uh, I said hey we uh, opened for his volcano uh, no Big Dipper's first gig was opening for the Mekon's at the Rat in 1986 yeah. when they had just come back from uh, their kind of being away for a few years. And he remembered it as a nightmare that uh, nobody wanted to hear their country and Western. Everyone wanted to hear where were you and nobody wanted to hear these like country and Western waltzes that they had started playing. So he remembered that night well. Yes, absolutely. But we remember Elvis Costello's country album and you know, that was, that was, that was, I mean, A Good Year for the Roses is still a classic song, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. No, he's, he's got away with the, all the genres. Yeah, he has, actually. Did you ever, just lastly, because you talked, we mentioned the bass player. Did you ever read his book? The, he, did, he did a book in... No, but I am on a uh, quest to read every rock biography in uh, Under the Sun, um, and so that's definitely on my list because he had an interesting life. I mean, he was older than I think he was. He had already had a career right. kind of as, a, as a as a player. And um, but yeah, the, I, I think I'm friends with him on Facebook. But I, I did want to get you know get the dirt on because he was not well liked by the band. Like they were so happy when he left. Yeah, that, I do. Because uh, because I can. I mean, I do remember getting this book and. And skipping through it and stuff like that. And, and this, well, this was decades ago, and it's all a bit. But I can remember him describing Elvis, you know, watching him, and 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 the sort of there was that sense of hatred towards <laughs> of, of when Elvis was kind of. I just remember this line about, oh, Elvis is waving his hand that we all got to start playing slow now, and it's oh god, right. oh, he's yeah. doing. It. But you know, this is all from a memory from decades ago. So. I'd have to sort of, uh, yeah, take it. I haven't got it. There's some good to... ones. The Chris Difford one is is interesting at parts. Have you have you read that one? No. I was a big Squeeze fan, so I read that one. He um, he like he goes through all the, you know, he's had a problem with the drink, and he kind of sinks low and loses loses his fortune, and he ends up like being kind of the the um, chauffeur for Brian Ferry for a while. <laughs> <laughs> He gets hired to help help him write lyrics, and he ends up becoming his driver. <laughs> and he realizes he's like, How did, "What happened here? What I came? I was I hello." <laughs> <laughs> so there's lots of those. I mean, most of these um, rock bios say they, there is a tendency to you know they they deal with the the drinking and the the drugs and like um, the Go Go's one is really fascinating. Is that Kathy? Kathy Valentine's, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. a really, that's a great one, yeah. But we did, Big Dipper was kind of boring. We didn't have any drug problems. We were, you know, we liked our beer, but we were more like into chocolate milk and... Yes. And, uh, well, I, the, yeah. the, the, see, from two, if you had been from Tucson, Arizona, you'd have just all been smoking loads of weed, so... Yes, yeah, peyote. It would have been that, wouldn't it? Yeah, getting tired. <laughs> but anyway, anyway, look, thank you ever so much. And I'll keep in touch, but I can send you the link and then you can always put it on the page. Oh, we will we'll definitely uh, put it up. Oh, we and they'll love it, it yeah. one day. They'll love it. Yeah. Anyway, look, have a great day. I'm going to go to bed. Thank you, David. Thank you for making the time and have a good night. You too. <laughs> Take care. See you later. All right. Bye-bye. And that is how you end an interview. 
or chat. Anyway, look, a massive thank you to Steve Michener from Big Dipper and various other bands, including Dump Truck. Brilliant stuff. Anyway, look, this has been David East of the C86 Show. If you want to contact me, um, I do sound a bit needy, but I'm not really. You can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. And um, yes, that would be nice. As long as it's positive. I mean, if it's not, don't bother. Um, and also, I've been doing these interviews for quite a while, and I've archived all those. So you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, and Podbean. Aren't you lucky? Anyway, look, thanks for listening. Have a great week, and stay safe. <laughs>